This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Marie Curie, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. And Althea Gibson, the first black woman to compete at and win Wimbledon. On a national and global level, History has remembered and embraced these women's names, and many more, for their monumental achievements that have gone on to inspire and motivate the generations of women and men that followed them. But when it comes to quieter moments of revolutionary progress at a local level, the incredible first of women all over this country can too often go unrecognized. In the Cape Fear, Women have equaled or outnumbered men for much of its developed history. They've provided the backbone for this community. They've held down the home front while men were away at war. They would seek jobs they were told weren't for women and run for leadership positions that history and even their peers told them only men could handle. They would raise their children and the children of others. They would attempt to further the progress of their gender, their race, their family, and their homes, even when the barriers seemed insurmountable. They are politicians, entrepreneurs, caregivers, and dreamers. And even though history is often viewed through the lens of the achievements of men, it's women who have played an invaluable role in the development of the Cape Fear region, one first at a time. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram. And I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Instead of our traditional scripted portion, where I break down the story of the week, we're going to present a special conversation between myself and Cape Fear Museum historian Jan Davidson, where we look at the stories of several women who made important and groundbreaking impacts on this region. Some of them come from the political sphere or the business realm. There's the story of the first woman to be mayor of Wilmington, who may have also been the first woman to hold that position in any city in North Carolina. There's Wilmington's first female police officer, a position that was reserved for men until the 1900s. And there's the first woman of color to lead a school here in Wilmington, just as the country 
was starting to see the value in structured education. In their communities, these women broke down barriers, and in turn, they made history. So sit back and settle in for this special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, as we honor just a few of the trailblazing women of the Cape Fear. Joining me now to talk about some truly incredible women here in the Cape Fear's history is Jan Davidson, the historian for the Cape Fear Museum here in Wilmington. Jan, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Now, you'll remember Jan from uh, two of our previous episodes, the first being Topsy the Elephant, which was always a fun one, and then she came back for Prohibition in the Cape Fear. And our first story is actually going to be in the age of Prohibition, Um, but before we get there... I want to kind of set the scene for women in this region. Now, it sounds so weird to say, let's talk about, you know, the presence of women in the Cape Fear. But you really do have to look at kind of what their roles were and their presence in the area. And and I'll admit that I stole something from a presentation you just recently did at Cape Fear Museum, where you said that history is often viewed through the lens of the achievements of men. Mm -hmm. And I think you really have to think about that and really look at how we view history and what we're not viewing and what we're kind of letting fall through the cracks. And a lot of these are these achievements of women. So as the region is being developed, what is the presence of women in this region? What are the roles and, and life for life like for women in this region? Well, I think that you're hitting on a really important point that so women's history or the idea of women's history and that it's an important part of history really has only um, been around for the past 50 years, which sounds like a long time. And in some ways it is. But it means that often those kind of classic histories, the biographies, the military histories, um, you know, they do focus on the achievements of men. So when you sort of flip the script a little bit and you're looking at stories of life in a region through the lens of women, it can really change your understandings. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that why Women's History Month, um, it should be every month, just like African American History Month should be every month. But it does give us a chance to kind of um, take a step back and say, so what does looking at women's lives tell us and how does that transform our understandings of our region or the history of this country? Or So in, in New Hanover County, um, obviously there's been, Wilmington has been here since the 1720s and there's been a long-standing settlement. So, and women have always been here. Yes, there were women here. There were always women here, <laughs> yes. yes. And um, but of course their experiences varied greatly by their social class and by their race, uh, especially during, uh, before the Civil War, you know, most folks in the county who were African-American were enslaved. Actually, the free population, though there were larger numbers of free black women in 1860 than there were free black men. Mm. But um, for white women, they tended in the 19th century, if you're rich, you tend not to work. Um, If you're poor, obviously women have always worked. And when I say work in this context, I mean either work for um, an enslaver or wage-earning work. So what we see in the 19th century is this basically removal of women from workplaces as work 
changes from being a household activity for many to being an activity that you do in a workshop or a factory mm -hmm. or in a larger farm. And so it kind of erases women's economic contributions. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know women weren't allowed to vote until 1920. And even then, it was only in our region was white women who, were, who got mm -hmm. access to the vote. So we don't have women in the political sphere as much. And yet, um, I have numbers from 1870 to 1960, and that's only because that's the ones that I divided. But women make up the majority of New Hanover County's population through that time. So when we're not looking at women's stories, we're ignoring half of the people who lived here. Which is crazy to think about. I mean, now, because, I mean, there's still a lot of effort to just bring women's stories today to the forefront. But thinking about that huge amount of time and not thinking about half of the stories that are happening in this region when mm -hmm. we know so much happens in this region just based on everything we've talked about on this show before. Mm -hmm. um, it's really crazy to think about. It and is. that's why we wanted to do this episode because there's some fun stories out there and some really important stories out there that I have never even personally heard of that I thought were um, really valuable to bring to uh, the show. Yeah, and when I did a tour of for Oakdale for women about women and brought up, and I think this is what we're going to talk mm -hmm. about, at least in part, was the first woman mayor of mm -hmm. Wilmington. You know, nobody in the crowd had ever heard of her. Nope. And honestly, I'd seen her mentioned in an article once a few years ago, and I went back to it, and I'm like, huh, this is actually a really interesting story. It tells you a lot about the 1920s. It gives you some insight into that early period where women were getting the vote, but it wasn't quite clear what their role was going to be in politics. Yeah. Well, I mean, women... They were in. They were involved in so many sectors, even though those stories weren't coming out. So, mm -hmm. and and the woman you mentioned, um, her name is Catherine Mayo Cowan, and she is where we're going to start because I took that tour at Oakdale with you, mm -hmm. and I was so fascinated by the story when we got to her grave because I had not heard it before. Um, I, as you said, I don't think many people had, but she is the first woman to be mayor of Wilmington, and still to this day, the only woman to be yeah. mayor of Wilmington. How did she get there? So what basically happens is her husband is the mayor and he dies in office and they decide to appoint Catherine Mayo Cowan instead of appointing somebody else to that office. That actually happens quite a lot in American politics in general, where women, the wives of politicians are then, um, you know, put into their place if they die. To fill out that role. To fill, fill out, out that, that term, role. I guess, yeah. And I, reading the newspaper, you can't quite tell why they picked her. At least one of the articles makes it sound like it's to honor her husband. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, so I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I think it's... I, I would guess that it was probably easier than deciding to appoint a man from the political... Yeah, I don't actually know. I guess I think they probably did it so that they didn't have to decide which man to appoint um, because I think they assumed that she would not stand and that she would not um, be elected if she did stand for a second term. So it's kind of a nice, we'll just put her in for the year and then we'll figure out what to, you know, other men can stand. It's almost like she's his wife. So who's going to object to her being there to fill his place? Right. She's likely to 
to continue on, and she did continue on a lot of his policies. Mm-hmm. And I will say that um, before we get any further, this is 1924. Yes. Uh, September 1924. <laughs> we forgot to mention oh, the well, date, but know. this is, and that's why I mentioned earlier that this was during Prohibition. When I was looking at newspaper articles about her, uh, the day that they announced that she's going to be appointed is also the day they announced the trial date for the two men who killed a Prohibition officer in Brunswick <laughs> County, which we spoke about. So that's probably where I first ran across her is looking at that newspaper and yeah. I must have seen it because I've been th- trying to remember when yeah. I first saw her name. And I saw that and I was like, this is just bringing it all back. Yes. But <laughs> what I really find interesting, and I'll tell you this, is uh, I went and looked at a lot of these articles in the Wilmington Morning Star, which mm-hmm. is the precursor to the Star News or is the Star News. And her husband's death is the center of the front page. I mean, the mayor dies. That is very important. In that period, newspapers were different because they were the main source of news. So usually the front page of a newspaper was not local news. It was national news. You were learning about stuff that was happening on a national level in the newspaper. So if it was really big, important local news, it would get to the front. Um, Her husband's death was center of the front page in the Wilmington Morning Star. But her appointment as mayor and the first female mayor in the entire state was on page 12. And <laughs> yep. so you can see already the value that they were placing on what was going to be a short term for her, but also an important term. She was going to be the head of this city. And I think that's important to really think about how they are framing it, even from the beginning. And one of the articles says, you know, she's going to be in charge of the police and the fire department. And I, so I do think when you start thinking about that, this woman is being put in charge of all the municipal services, and there aren't as many municipal services in 19, the 1920s yeah. as there are today. But nonetheless, this is this is a position of power. It was also well paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mayor earned five thousand dollars a year, and I wonder if they're basically giving her a form of uh, pension at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. She was a woman who was just widowed with five kids. So I think that um, I wondered about that. But I also think, you know, that is a lot of money, um, especially for a woman to earn since women historically and still today earn less than men. Yeah. Well, and and, uh, at this point, a widowed woman, I mean, she's, she's now living a life on her own. And so she has this new position, this new money that's coming in. It, I imagine that it was interesting to see this town grapple with her being at the head of it. Um, And it's even reflected in an editorial that ran near her appointment where they basically, I thought it was interesting to read. They basically hit both extremes. They tell people to not panic because her appointment is not setting a precedent that men will never rule again. Mm -hmm. But they're also telling them to support her and to, they basically frame it as she was married to a man that we really loved So she must be someone that we really love because she'll follow in his footsteps. And so I thought it was really interesting to see how they talk about her and try to almost calm any type of unease there might have been with her being appointed right from the get go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is not so long after the, the successful campaign for the 19th Amendment and for women getting suffrage, Mm -hmm. white women in our area. So, and there have already been these conversations, debates, discussions about, you know, do women need a vote, especially if they're married, because doesn't their husband represent them? Um, What will women do with that vote? Will they vote as a block? There were some big fears that that might happen, you know, and then women get the power. Um, It's some of the same kind of rhetoric and language that we see 
people using around in the white supremacy campaign of 1898, but substituting women for African Americans, like this, the, you know, it's a little bit of a fear of what does it mean to give this previously unrepresented group of people power? Um, and if you think that they're inferior, which many men did, mm -hmm. um, what does that, what will that do to our nation and our society? Absolutely. And they mentioned that in that editorial, they say that now that women are citizens and voters alongside men, what will that mean for her as mayor? And they say that, you know, we have to believe that she's going to do great things for us. Mm -hmm. And one thing I didn't see much of, and granted, I didn't go through every newspaper for the next year, but I didn't see much mention of any actions she took or anything to really show that she was beloved as a mayor. I mean, until she starts re announcing her reelection campaign, which was an interesting move for her as well. Yes. Yeah, what I I also did not go through every day of the newspapers and I do see I see her positioning herself when she does decide to run again as saying, you know, I'm um sensible and moderate and I'd get things done and you should vote for me because I will continue on that path. But it never said I'm stand for like the way people do today. There wasn't yeah. issues in the same way yeah. that we sometimes see today. Well, and she also chose not to campaign for a reelection, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting, bold choice for not that. to campaign and not to advertise. And if you do look at, I think I looked at a couple of the papers around that that, and you know, right next to her, there's that article that says she's going running but not doing any of those things. And then there's all these ads for whoever for mayor. I can't remember any of the mm -hmm. men's names. And you're not going to win if you don't have name recognition. No. So, and that to me is a, in, potentially provides us with insight into how respectability and gender politics made it almost impossible for her to, to, win mm -hmm. because I see that I'm not going to campaign that it might be a concern about whether it would seem unladylike. Yeah. And once you start not doing things like campaigning, you've basically shot yourself in the foot. Well, and she framed it as she wasn't going to do it out of respect for her husband yeah. and his death. At least that, that's kind of how I read it. And so mm -hmm. it was, it's an interesting way to go about that next phase. Yeah, and, and she lost. I mean, she became eighth. I think there were eight people standing and she came in dead last. Mm -hmm. So it didn't work out so well for her. That's the 1920s. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't imagine the things that she faced. One thing that I pulled was the September 23rd, 1924 article about her swearing in, which she didn't want anyone there. She didn't want any kind of pomp and circumstance. Mm -hmm. The headline for that article is, Hand of Woman Now Guides Municipal Bark of City. Mrs. Cowan assumes reigns. And as someone who writes for a newspaper, I can tell you that that is loaded with a tone. <laughs> and that tone is hand of woman really is almost delicate, but also like, what does a hand of a woman mean now that it's there? I mean, right. it's not, it's not this woman who is respected, who is a societal woman who people know is now looking after your lives. It's a hand of a woman is now in charge of what all of these things are. And I think that I read that and really was like, that's an interesting way to phrase what is a huge first for not only this area, but the state. She was the first woman to hold that type of executive office. And uh, it's interesting to see how it was presented to the public. Mm -hmm. Do we know what happened to her after that? Um, so we do, actually. She went to 
DC and she start, she worked she worked for FDR's New Deal administration and she was a senior how did they put it a unit supervisor for the Works Progress Administration I found an article from um, actually from Myrtle Beach so mm-hmm. one of the Myrtle Beach newspapers which was by her grandson mm-hmm. and he basically said that she was the mayor of Wilmington a stalwart in democratic politics active in FDR's campaign and then an executive with the National Recovery Administration so she ends up in DC working in government um, and wow. uh, and the, the quote said along with Frances Perkins one of the highest ranking women in that national government and Frances Perkins was the secretary first woman secretary of labor i could not find more information about what she actually did in in the in the new deal and in the government but she did go on to have a very successful post mayoral life mm-hmm. when she dies the newspaper just says she was the first woman mayor of wilmington yeah. and and that kind of just seems to have disappeared from our consciousness yeah i again you'd think that that's something that we would think about i mean obviously she wasn't elected but right she did take this post mm-hmm. and i imagine that there was support in the community mm-hmm. to see her there you also have to remember as you said that this is four years after women get the right to vote there's still right. some monies about it but right. I think it's really unfortunate that we don't talk about it more. Um, and I learned about it on your tour. Right. And I think a lot of people did. Yes, uh, they did. <laughs> so, Including uh, the superintendent of Oakdale. Yes, Eric Cozen, who <laughs> yeah. has been a guest on the show. Yes. We were, he and I were talking about how he didn't even know that that particular grave out there. I mean, that really speaks to Oakdale's plethora of stories. Yes. But um, I just thought that was a, a really interesting story. And it got me really interested in doing this episode, particularly because um, the women we're going to talk about next all kind of have those moments of really important impact in this area that just aren't really broadcast from the rooftops like a lot of first are. Mm-hmm. And not every single one of the ones that we're about to talk about um, is considered a first, you know, not the first woman mayor or something like that. But they are really important and they kind of set the stage for some really important change later down the line and, and, and representation really for women um, so the first one I want to talk about is uh, Augusta Mosley Cooper. Okay. Now, I want to do that one because as we're kind of in a political mindset, um, she was the first black woman to run for city council. And she did that in 1969, correct? Yes. So tell me a little bit about her. What was her story and how did she get there? But Because in 1969, uh, an African-American man hadn't even run for right. uh, city council. So she was really ahead of the pack on that. So what what was her story? So I think she is a fascinating woman. She was born in 1903. She dies in 1990. So she basically um, lives through a lot of the 20th century and all the change that happens in those eras. Um, She went to Gregory. She went through segregated schools. She went to Gregory here. Then she went to Shaw University in Raleigh, which was for high school. It wasn't completely a college at that point. And then she graduated from Howard in 1930. And Howard University in Washington, D.C. is is one of the premier HBCUs, Mm -hmm. uh, historically black colleges in the country. And she comes back and she becomes a social worker. And she works for the county and uh, and other social work activities for um, 35 years, I think. 
And she's amazing in part because she's this professional African-American woman at a time in when most African-American women who worked for wages in our community were domestic servants. Mm-hmm. She's amazing because her dad was born in slavery. So one generation later, he was a child in slavery, but one generation later, she's a college graduate. And his, her father was born at a time when African-Americans weren't allowed to read and write. Mm-hmm. So I find her um, incredibly inspiring in just those terms. But then she also went on to run for city council. <laughs> um, and she almost won. And honestly, I was really shocked that she almost won. Yeah. And By just a few votes, apparently. Yeah. So I think the story is fascinating that she... So our city council is this weird... Maybe it's not weird to Americans, but weird to me, (laughs) nonpartisan election, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody stands as a Democrat or Republican, and they didn't back then. But like nine people stood for three seats. Mm -hmm. And so they had a runoff. Mm -hmm. And in that, they had to have a runoff. And in that first round of election, Augusta Mosley Cooper came second out of the nine. And she came second because of the African-American vote. And that was a vote that was increasing and had been increasing since the 50s. But the 1965 Voting Rights Act really makes a huge difference. Um, So she comes second in the runoff and then she loses by just a small margin of votes in the second round of the election, which was, you know, the runoff had taken them down to six. And she so, ran against eight white men. Yeah, eight white guys she, and Augusta Mosley Exactly, Cooper. because she she even is the first African-American, regardless of gender, I mean, the Afri- first African-American man to run and be on the board isn't for several years later. So she is really kind of blazing this trail against eight white men. I mean, that mm-hmm. had to be really intimidating, not just, just in politics, but also in the South, yes. in the 60s. I mean you're still coming off a lot of things with the civil rights movement. Well, and we're in the middle of desegregating the schools. Mm-hmm. The Williston Senior High School was desegregated in 1968. So in September 1968, African-American high schoolers are are sent to previously white schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not an issue that goes away quickly. We have a basically a three-year fight about desegregation with the involving the courts and all kinds of stuff before the whole system is really desegregated. There's a lot of community tensions surrounding that. And yes, the first man who was on the city council was Kenneth McLaurin in 1972. And actually, just like Catherine Mayo Cowan, he was appointed at first. Um, And in fact, there's a couple of folks, including uh, later the first African-American woman on the city council who actually won. She was also appointed to the the job and then Mm. subsequently won election. Wow. So Augusta Mosley Cooper wasn't I think one of the amazing things about her, too, is thinking about her life. She's retired by the time she's running for city council. She has done all sorts of work. She is so uber qualified. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) And that, to me, is something that as I put together the talk that you came to and but just doing work about women, um, it's kind of one of those things that say you say you have to be twice as good. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like. Almost all the women who've successfully run for office or or um, became a first are just so amazingly qualified and have really are the kind of people that you want to have run your yeah. 
city government and your local government. And Augusta Mosley Cooper was born in the north side. She lived on the north side and she deeply cared about her community, from what I can tell from the newspapers. And she partly ran on the basis of being a housing advocate. And one of the things that happens, even though she doesn't win the race, is that uh, the council takes notice and starts to pay a little bit more attention to affordable housing in the wake of her run. So even when women don't win, they make change. Well, they're bringing these issues to the forefront. And I think that's really important to this conversation because you do see that Catherine Mayo Cowan was the first mayor. There has not been another woman to be mayor in this town since, Mm -hmm. or the city since. But her story was still impactful. I mean, she went on to do what it sounds like really big things in politics in D.C. I mean, mm-hmm. that kind of set her there. Yeah. Augusta Mosley Cooper then gets those issues about her community to the forefront, even though she doesn't make it to the board. And I think that's kind of the value of these stories besides just the incredible women behind them. But they're bringing these issues and these opportunities to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really interesting. And I'll say that if you look back, you know, we're talking a lot about some of the news articles. And for a lot of these stories, you have to rely on some of that because yes. that's the insight. Because as we've said, these stories aren't readily told. They weren't written down as a lot of the ones that we talk about on the show are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not even a picture of Catherine Mayo Cowan that I've been able to find that no, you've been able nope. to find. <laughs> I had people at the library trying to look one down and there's not. I mean, they wrote about her. But they never really showed her. And I think that's really important. And I would imagine the same is uh, the case with Augusta. There are pictures of her. Mm -hmm. But I imagine she wasn't as visible as her candidate, her fellow candidates were. Yeah. And she I mean, she she was noted and notable at the time. In some ways, she won a National Organization for Women Susan B. Anthony Award. And I um, heard some stories about her from folks in the community. But. It is a challenge to fit those stories into the kinds of narratives that history tells sometimes. And also, there isn't, um, I mean, maybe somebody has her papers, but, you know, yes, we're dependent on the newspapers, and the newspapers reflect their times. Mm -hmm. So the Star News in the 60s was really bad about telling stories about Mm African-Americans, especially if there was civil rights activity. I'm sorry. To say well, that. well, and, and <laughs> but, you know, I wouldn't I, say the Star News would be the only paper that did that. Uh, no, but no, you are but it's correct. A, it's, yeah. a, it's a trend, right? It is, it's I like mean, yeah. we report reports reflect what's valued in society, and you know when we're in these periods of transition, or even just in general, you know, women's women are not represented as well. Mm-hmm. African Americans are not represented as well. Latinx folks are not resem- represented as well in the stories that mm-hmm. we tell. Well, the same thing with Catherine again. You know, as I read that headline, it's because that's how they viewed her—a hand of a woman. I mean, that's that's how they've written it. That's how they're presenting it, and that continues for mm-hmm. women of of all races as you get through the 1900s and even today. I mean, yeah, I mean, she doesn't today. have, a, it's not the brain of a woman, right? No, it's true. It's not the brain of a woman, I the mean, skill of is, a woman, the talent, which is what she's actually yeah. bringing to the yeah. table. So, so, well, the first woman to sit on city council, the first black woman to officially sit on city council was, uh, Catherine B. Moore. Yes. And it wasn't until almost three decades later in the 1990s. Yep. She was appointed in 1991 uh, to fill out a term. She was suggested by Luther B. Jordan, who was an African-American city councilman at the time. And she was the fifth 
African-American and the first African-American woman to serve. And she continued to serve until 2005. So she was Mm reelected at least three times, I think. And she's still alive. She is. So you see that legacy continue. So let's move a few years into the future to 1972. And that is when Vivian Wright becomes the first woman to run for county commission. Well, the first woman to serve. I don't know if she's the first woman to run. But she's the first woman to be elected. Yes. Okay. I hope other women women ran before then, but I actually don't know. Um, Yes, so she was a Republican, and she was she took office in 1972, and then she was reelected in 1976, and she she left the board of commissioners to run for Congress, and she was not successful in that run. And she seems she's interesting because I think. I've read some articles where she tried to say that it wasn't important that she was a woman. Mm-hmm. It was important that she was um, her issues, uh-huh. um, which is something that that is completely legitimate and that people say. I think it's also interesting that she's a Republican, and that gives us reminds us that women do not all fit into one like neat neat, neat little box. We mm-hmm. don't all believe the same things, and I also think she's interesting because she seems to, at least in the seventies, open the gates for other women to serve on the board of commissioners. Um, in 1976, there were two other women who were elected, Ellen Williams and Karen Gatovi. They were both Democrats. So at that point, three of the five county commissioners were women. Mm-hmm. The so, majority. The majority. And that has not happened again since that time, wow. although it might happen in the next election since we have two women Democrats standing and and one, two women on the board, one of whom will still be on there. Yeah. So if, if those two women get elected, then we'll be back in that situation. We could see history again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but as has been, I think that's an interesting point to make because that's the only time that's happened. Mm-hmm. And it seems that her being on it really kind of, as you said, opened up that gate. I mean, it probably inspired people to run those two women, even right. maybe even more, I mean, mm-hmm. after that. So I think that goes back to, again, these... You know, when you start taking some of these steps and seeing that success or even not maybe not even getting on the board like Augusta, um, you can see some of that change happen. Yeah. And you also I think it shows um, history doesn't work in just one way. And there's always progress because we've had times when the board has been all male since Mm -hmm. that time. So there are these moments. And I think the 70s, especially with the campaign for the ERA and some of the other changes that were happening with the uh, women's rights movement and the civil rights movement. Um, The Civil Rights Act added women into the equation of people that you couldn't discriminate against. And that really opened a lot of doors for many women. And I think, you know, society was going through um, some transformations in the late 60s. And Honestly, the development of birth control and the increased use of that meant that women had more options. And those you can see the flowering of those options in the 70s. And I, and there is maybe a little bit more, um, not naivete, but, uh, you know, first blush of enthusiasm of mm-hmm. we can make a difference. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we will all get equal pay. Yeah. Which, you know. 40 years, 50 years after the those acts that were supposed to, you know, help with that, and we still don't have it, maybe we, we're all a little bit more cynical at this point. Yeah, that might have added to it. But you're <laughs> I right, I mean, but you do, I guess that is a really good point that, you know, you do see that 
uh, enthusiasm, especially with these three women. And it, not yeah. just three women running, but three women being supported enough by this community right. to be elected. Yeah. And so I think that's really important. Now, I will move away from politics just because I know not everyone wants to stay in the political <laughs> sphere in our current uh, climate completely. But I thought that those were three really important stories and three really important women who made progress in a really kind of groundbreaking way here in the Wilmington area. They were hardly the first women to run for office or hold office throughout the country. But when you think about local level stuff, it's it's hard to sometimes get some of these stories out when there's when there's a plethora of other things there. So that's why we wanted to highlight them. Um, but we'll move into some other things. One that I think is really interesting is uh, a woman named Marie Galloway. Mm-hmm. And I first heard of her again through you uh, because she was one of the first crossing guards in Wilmington. And that might sound crazy now when you think about cr- crossing guards, but that was a really important role uh, in that time period, especially in a smaller community like this. So what's her story? Yes, yeah, so she's um, she's an African American woman. She's born in 1908 and died in the ni- 1996. And she was one of the first four African American women hired by the Wilmington Police Department to be school crossing guards. And there were white women who were hired at the same time. They were hired in 1953, and she began work in March. And she was uh, stationed at the intersection of Tenth and Dawson, which means she served. The Williston and Gregory community, um, bringing yeah, people over, yes, now. from the south side, crossing those streets into the school. She was married and had, again, had a bunch of kids. At least I think she did. Yes, four children. Um, <laughs> and her husband worked at the the shipyard during World War Two, and then he worked for the Wilmington Journal. And she, she seems to have. Been, I think we have a wonderful photo of her, yes. which is why I know anything about her. That was taken by Herbert Howard, who is a local African American photographer, and the museum has this fantastic collection of stuff. But so she was in that role for decades, and I actually, now that I'm talking to you, I wonder if there are people who remember her being there, and mm-hmm. I'm my own. Kid, when he went to school, the crossing guard at Williston, um, they all the kids loved her. Mm-hmm. She she was really kind to everybody. So I kind of have this image of Marie Galloway sort of performing that role and being that sort of focal point for children in the community. It's also important to notice that she these women were hired by the police department, um, and it was the first time that they'd hired African-Americans since the white supremacy violence campaign of 1898. Um, And they did subsequently hire African-American men as police officers, but these women were the first women hired by the police department. And this is more than half a century later. Yes. That is a really fantastic photo, and I'll share it with this episode Mm -hmm. um, that the museum has provided, because it really does show kind of her just kind of Stand. I mean, it's just a really powerful photo yeah. of her really just holding her ground and really protecting these mm-hmm. kids. And in what seems like such a simple way now, mm-hmm. but then it was a really big step of progress that mm-hmm. she was out there mm-hmm. and doing that for the community. And I think there are a couple of interesting things. One, they worked like an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half in the evening. And so it's a very, it's not 
a prestigious or well-paid job necessarily, but it's a flexible one. And mm -hmm. it's the kind of job that a woman with children historically has held because you need to have that flexibility as somebody in the family and that usually falls on women. But yes, it is something that you, that's a visible presence in the community. And I think that those, the ways that women begin to move into more visible roles, um, that are, are, as you just said, often connected to these idea of caring professions. So nursing becomes the province of women in the 20th century. Uh, teaching becomes something that's much more associated with women. There are these jobs that fit into our understandings of, of gender that then are become more opened up for women. And there are always women who do things that are outside of those mm -hmm. uh, those constructions, but you can see the ways that work and women's work experiences are shaped by uh, the sort of societal understanding of, of what women's roles are. Mm -hmm. Now, before we move out of this education uh, sector, I want to mention another woman that you introduced to me. Her name is Mary Washington Howe, and she was the principal of Williston, which... Um, Again, women didn't really hold that position a lot, especially because she was an African-American woman. So what is, um, what's her story? How did she get there and, and why is that an important moment for education here locally? So she, yes, you're right. She uh, was the principal of Williston in the 19th century. She held that office when she died in 1900. She, like Augusta Mosley Cooper, is one of these stories where you just marvel at the change that her life represents. So she's born in 1852. She was the daughter of uh, Alfred Howe, and he was a free African-American man here who was a carpenter. He is, and he built the family a house. He built a lot of the things that you see on the landscape. She went off to... Philadelphia and went to a school there that was set up by Quakers. And actually, when she was there, um, it was run by a woman principal, uh, oh. which is an African-American woman principal, which I thought was kind of cool. She comes back here. She teaches for her entire career. She lives in her family house. And yeah, she's the first and as far as I know, the only principal of Williston that was a woman um, throughout its history. And so for me, just like Augusta represents this sea change, so does, um, so does Mary Washington Howe. And one of the things that she lets us see is the rise in the importance of public education in our community in general, but also specifically for African-Americans, especially those who were previously enslaved. Um, there's a historian that says that African-Americans flocked to the schoolhouse door after, after the end of the Civil War, after emancipation. It was, again, one of the, the things that you were not allowed legally to learn how to read and write before. Um, there are always enslaved people who did anyway, but you know it was a punishable offense to learn how to read and write. So that's one of the ways freedom was defined by the people who were enslaved was to go and grab an education. Um, it makes a lot of sense. You can't take somebody's education away. Mm -hmm. You can fire them from their job. You can do other stuff. So she represents um, this big change, this attempt, this enthusiasm in our community, in our African-American community for education. It's also the rise of public education in North Carolina 
1868 Constitution that was rewritten to get North Carolina back into the state into the Union was written by Republicans and African Americans like Abraham Galloway, and they proposed and funded public education. And so there was a much stronger push to educate the population and more funding for it on the local and on the state level. And she, she clearly was a great teacher. And when she died, the paper actually reported that she died which is sometimes doesn't happen when you're when you're a black person in our community but it said one of those things about everybody admired her black and white and she died fairly young at 50 so she kind of I think um, didn't maybe didn't have the time to secure her legacy Um, but she's somebody who I think can really get us uh, give us some insight into into how our society changed and how education became more important. I I think that is such a fascinating story because I think we also don't think about the fact that when we live today, school is just a part of our lives. It's it's just an understanding that if you have children, that's where they're headed. That's going to define, you know, 18 years of your life leading Mm -hmm. up to that for parents. But there was a time where that was not the case. Right. So, yes, I, I always joke that, that school is the work of children now, and it's compulsory. But the first compulsory attendance law in North Carolina didn't pass till 1913. And children between the ages of 8 and 12 had to go to school for four months a year. So it is this this industry that's basically exploded in importance and has um, you know created this all of these folks who you need you want, if you make everybody go to school then you need teachers to teach them and women tended to stay in high school longer than men and graduate with higher rates at the turn of the century because a working class male could get a better paying job without the education, but a working class female couldn't. So it was a family strategy to send to keep your girls in school as long as possible. And then they become the teachers and the nurses um, that then fuel our education and healthcare systems through the 20th century. Well, and also that goes back to a woman having to have even more credentials just to get to the same job that a man does. Yeah. And just the idea that women are somehow innately, uh, more caring than men and fitted for certain kinds of work. There's, there's a few more women that I want to talk about. And I think there's um, some really fascinating stories. And one that I asked you to um, tell us a little bit about on the show, as we were kind of preparing our list of women was the first woman to be a police officer in Wilmington. Today, we obviously have many uh, women to be on the police uh, force, but at a, at a time, that was something that was seen completely out of the realm of what a woman was supposed to do in a society. So who was this first woman in Wilmington to uh, be on the police force? Yeah, so policing is still a predominantly male occupation. Absolutely. Um, and the first women police in general in the country so were hired in, I, I think the first woman police officer was 1905. So our first woman police officer was hired in the 1920s, and her name was Kate Brewer. She um, she was a widow. Uh, her husband and her had worked at the New Hanover County Stockade, which means the prison. Okay. Um, and she was a, a part of the staff there. And I think she's fascinating for a couple of reasons, or the idea of her is fascinating, because... The articles that you read make it clear that hiring a woman 
police officer was something that people really struggled with as an idea mm-hmm. because of the idea that the police were, you know, men with guns. And mm-hmm. and actually there's um, tensions about the police in general in terms of professionalizing them in the in um, in the progressive era to make the police forces like especially in New York City, were seen as incredibly corrupt. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of um, desire to make the police more professional, but also um, there's ideas about juvenile crime and about working with women that all come together in this moment when when the city decides to hire a woman police officer and actually Catherine Mayo Cowan's husband was in, was in, was the mayor when they first start talking about this so it's wow. all kind of connected all coming to back that. together yes um but the they they hire her and they the articles are just hilarious um so they're talking about they decide to hire a woman in 1922 they don't actually do it that quickly they kind of go round and round about what she want they want and the way they describe in 1920 what they want a policewoman to do is they say, and this again is one of those newspaper quotes yep. that I don't think they would, you guys would still write today. No, we would not. <laughs> but it says, policewoman to be on job here soon will not pummel sob sisters, but welfare worker. And then in the, in the main piece of the article, it says, she will not be the sort that carries about a club and pummels sob sisters in the endeavor to enforce law and order, but rather a welfare worker who will conduct a municipal bureau for women and aid in the handling of women offenders in a womanly way. Wow. So yeah. again, it goes back <laughs> to the Catherine Mayo Cowan situation where the city, in conjunction with how it's presented through the news, mm-hmm are trying to minimize what these women are actually going to be doing. So it's not too much of a stretch to see that, you know, women are on the force now, mm-hmm. or at least a woman is on the force. So the fact that she was kind of relegated to the welfare sector, which meant that she probably wouldn't have seen much of that violence if there was any. And remember, this is, again, the age of prohibition. Right. Um, and so I think that's interesting to see how just from the get-go, they characterize what her role was going to be in almost terms that sound like it's a joke, in a womanly way. So I don't think, I think it sounds like a joke to us, but I don't think it was a joke at the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so because there was this, and I do think that you're right, yes, there's this this, this uncertainty and uncomfortableness with what is this going to mean and how does a woman fit into these organizations? And Anyone who's worked in a situation where there are a minority, whatever that whatever that minority is, knows that you know it can be very uncomfortable for everybody involved to have that. You know, where does the woman police officer go to the bathroom in the police station? You know, these are issues that I wrote my dissertation about women who worked for the railroad in in Pennsylvania, and there were big conversations about what do we have to do if we're going to hire women? We have to provide these facilities, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it sounds um, almost farcical, but it's a real issue. So the infrastructure wasn't there. Right. So one of the things that I think is fascinating is that so Greensboro was the first place in North Carolina that seems to have hired a woman police officer in 1922. And she was a lawyer and the state president of the North Carolina League of Women Voters. 
And our local League of Women Voters is pushing for a woman police officer here. And part of that is because this is an era where progressive women see this. There's a, a historian that calls it the female dominion of reform. And what she's pointing to is there's a woman's bureau at the time. There's uh, my World War One railroad workers. There was a woman's service section of the railroad. It was literally designed to protect and enforce morality onto working class women. Um, and one of the articles that about this woman police officer is like, maybe she will deal with, you know, making sure that the young girls are behaving properly if they're going to the movies or other amusements, which were considered to be uh, a little more risque than they are today. Mm -hmm. So there's this change in our understanding of our community and, uh, and our the rising urbanity of society and that means that there are people who are concerned about juvenile there there's a new rise in the idea of juvenile justice there's a new rise in the idea of um there's some prison reform work that's going on and women police officers fit, officers fit into that in the sense that they're almost like a combination of social worker and morality enforcer mm -hmm. but not necessarily that they're going to be running around the streets um you know arresting people yeah. although they did say about kate brewer that she was a proper officer with a proper beat and an actual uniform at one point in well, one of the articles at least they Again, gave her that so. so it's like the same thing of like she's really it but you know you shouldn't be afraid of it you have to be both yes yeah. and so she walks i think that really interesting line um I mean, maybe she didn't walk it, but the public perception of, of like filling that role walk this line of it's for the good of people and it won't be bad for this woman. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's an interesting way to strike that tone of making sure that progress wasn't too progressive <laughs> um, and making sure that women being in these new sectors wasn't too alarming to the community as a whole. Now, I want to end on a woman who I think a, a lot of people know, uh, but I, I didn't know a lot about why people knew her. Um, her name is Hannah Block. Mm -hmm. And people know her, one, because she has her name on the Community Arts Center in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. and But she has a lot of just reach in this area. I mean, she was here through World War II. But what kind of makes her story so resonant with people here in our area? I think that... That she's just... So Hannah came to the museum for a program that we were doing before she died. And she was relatively aged. It was about the block shirt factory. Her husband um, was associated with that. And um, she charmed the pants off everybody and then proceeded to play the piano for everybody. <laughs> and to me that I didn't know her as a young woman. Um, I only know her through the, the, um, the documents and materials that we have, but that seemed to epitomize um, her. Mm -hmm. She was, uh, she went to, she was born in the teens. She went to Goucher, which is a women's college in Baltimore. She ended up in New York. She was a musician. She was singing in a nightclub when she met her husband. They got married and moved here in 1935. She was 
had her fingers in many things in World War II. So the Community Arts Center was the white USO building. It was, and yes. she was a big mover and shaker in the USO. She mm -hmm. played for, she, she, she performed for people. She worked on that organization. She was a part of the Red Cross's motocross. Um, motor corps, which these were women who used their vehicles to, you know, help help serve the community. She was the first woman lifeguard at uh, Carolina Beach, and she helped train and teach soldiers how to swim during World War II and ran the lifeguard service. We have her bathing suit. It's really awesome. It's very good, and I have took a picture, so I'll include oh, that good, as well. Oh, good, good. And um, so she ran beauty pageants and beauty contests. So she's this woman. She's she's a Renaissance woman, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the early 1960s, she is the first woman who's elected to our city council. Yep. And she was the mayor pro tem for a while as well. Mm -hmm. She was also involved in uh, preservation. So she was involved in the historic preservation movement here. And some of the things that we have in our collection are connect her to Katerina Yarborough, who was an African-American opera singer who grew up here. And they have this correspondence about Katerina's childhood home. And so even in her in the 80s, when when they're both getting a little bit older, they're having, you know, she's making a difference to our community. Yeah. So I think she's just one of these people that if you met her, then she just came across as this force of nature. Yeah. And and I, I'm tired just having recounted the, all the things that, <laughs> that she did. That was a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> and that was really just... She was also a mother and a wife. Exactly. And, and you know, it's just... You know, there are some people who are dynamos and mm -hmm. they they transcend any, maybe not any, but the kind of limits that are generally put on people. And mm -hmm. by doing so, they, they inspire the rest of us maybe to try a little harder. Yeah. And she's got her name on a building for it. And, and people do know her. I mean, mm -hmm. she was a very big presence in this area, like you just said. Mm -hmm. um, but it also goes to show that, you know, some women's stories, especially on a local level, they do get held on to. They mm -hmm. are preserved in ways like that. But then you also get stories like Augusta Mosley Cooper, who, you know, she was the first black woman to run for city council. It was years after um, Hannah Block was already on there. But mm -hmm. um, it's not as remembered as well. Uh, but they're still, they all kind of contribute to that progress in little ways and in, in big ways um, with Hannah Block. But I wanted to end on her story because she was the first and that kind of brings us back to the politics yeah. of where we started. But And again, she's a woman who's just think of all the changes that happened in her li lifetime. Know. You know, she was born when women weren't allowed to vote, um, where most women didn't go to college, where lots of women never had a job or middle class women weren't expected to work, where, you know, you're the the law, you know, favored your husband. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were so many things that, um, you know, challenged and burdened women um, and made their ch their chances of of succeeding. You know, there were structures in 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 the way of women um, fulfilling all of their potentials. And she still did all these amazing things. Mm -hmm. And yet, and also probably saw the world changing ways that, you know, makes it easier for the, for the next generation. Well, and all these women, they grew up in a world where they had never seen anyone do what they did. Right. And that is just incredible to think about. And most of them grew up in a world where segregation was um, 
everywhere. And they still either, I mean, Hannah made connections across to Katerina Yarbrough, maybe post most of the, the, the worst of it, but still that we, we see a world in which, in which we can do different things if we choose now. Yeah, I just see all these women as thinking about themselves and, and what they're doing, but also there seems to be a really big focus on community. They see the value of what these big steps they're mm-hmm. taking are going to be for the current community of their time and then the community of the future. And I think that that is something we should talk about more. Jan, thank you so much for doing this first episode where we've ever just had a conversation about a topic, but I, it was a great conversation about some truly incredible women. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I, I hope the audience does too. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage everyone to to look out for Jan's work and a lot of organizations here in our area who are constantly looking at women's history. Um throughout the year and uh, go back and look at all kinds of work. Like we said, there are some really fascinating and really important stories that have happened here uh, in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much, Jim. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the incredible stories of women making history in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much for joining me. As a reminder, We will now be debuting new episodes of the podcast every two weeks in 2020. So be sure to check back in then for the next chapter from our local history book. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to share some photos from the lives of the women that we discussed in this episode. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I include links to all of our episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Kate Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.